I'm Michael Hasted, and welcome to Arts Talk Radio, which brings you interviews, news and reviews relating to all aspects of the arts in Holland, which are either in English or where language is no problem. We concentrate on events in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and everything in between or nearby. Arts Talk Radio Online. Interviews and features on the arts in English. A mixed bag this week. Amsterdam-based American comedian Greg Shapiro reads the second instalment of his book The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. But first we're back in Delft and visiting an unusual artist who has established quite a reputation. Art Jacobs is the studio and also the gallery of René Jacobs, who can be seen working there most days of the week. It's also where all his work is shown and is for sale. It's an eclectic and eccentric mix of paintings, objects, small sculptures, old Dutch tiles and lots more besides. There are so many styles and techniques it's really difficult to describe. So I asked René how he would categorise his work. That is difficult indeed because I don't like to limit myself to one style only. I like to experiment, I like to try different things and that has resulted in a sort of couple of different uh, lines, stories or, or styles and I work on them uh, all in the same time. Um, I'm making more and more objects because I enjoy the three dimensionality of it. It's a big adventure. I make a lot of interventions and they're old uh, paintings that I buy and I paint our current times on top of them. And I would say I make more or less classical paintings with oil paint. Uh, I still do that as well because uh, painting is such a nice way to express yourself. But you, it seems you do very few um, complete 100% paintings. I, it's very rare you start off with a blank canvas and a tube of paint and, and produce yeah. a picture. Usually there's a starting point. You paint over photographs, uh, you paint over these old, the old paintings. I, I've noticed that when I start with a complete blank canvas, uh, it seems like you're reaching your limits of your own talent more quickly. Uh, because if you, uh, it, it's like an experiment. If you start with a blank canvas, you can never go any further than your fantasy uh, brings you. And that everybody says, well, well, your fantasy can bring you everywhere, but that's not really the case. If you have to improvise, however, if you get a sort of object that you buy on a flea market and it's old, and that is the starting point, you start off in a complete different way and it becomes uh, more of an adventure uh, uh, where it will end up. I I've noticed that the boundaries of my fantasy are bigger if I don't start with the blank canvas. Because although they are obviously difficult to, to categorize, there are lots of elements which, which people will recognize. I mean, there's a lot of surrealism, there's a lot of political satire, and there's a lot of just a laugh, just for a joke. Yeah, yeah sure. Humor is an important thing. Uh, and humor is in the Dutch society, I think, underestimated as well. We haven't been really laughing for the last 400, 400 years. Uh, uh, so... Um, that is a potential as well. And I think that with a sense of humor, uh, you can um, um, now, yeah, um, talk about deeper subjects as well. Humor is a way to 
create a message which is dark and grim maybe, but if you uh, present it in a humoristic way, it's still a pleasant painting to watch it. You started off by, by um, having your paintings produced in China commercially and, and retouching them. Um, but you also, um, another of your very thing, uh, things which I like very much is, is, is overpainting or repainting the ubiquitous Dutch blue and white tile and you put on a new motif. Yeah, I love doing that as well because they are so old and fragile, these tiles. They're sometimes from the 17th century. And, and some, some of them quite valuable. Uh, some of them are quite valuable indeed. Uh, they, they can be more than 70, 80 euros uh, as a starting point. But uh, it's the combination, it's the contrast as well between the new and the old. You can very much see in the tile how old it is. And if you paint a highway on top of it, or even worse, a science fiction fantasy, uh, then you have this big clash between styles and times, and that I find interesting. But they're very well done. You have to look very closely before you actually realize that they're not the original. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you showed me one the, the other day um, with a girl taking a selfie with a ghetto blaster by her feet, and, and you just look, glance at it, it looks like a, a normal Dutch tile of the yeah. 17th century. Some people, uh, I've got a wall of paintings and tiles hanging here, which are all old and I've painted our current times on top of them. And sometimes people don't even notice, but that's the challenge as well. I want to paint it in a way that it looks like one person has made it. And that, that um, it, it takes a lot of time already to make a proper delve blue color and to do it properly in the style, not too uh, uh, correctly, but a little bit incorrect, a little bit uh, hasty as well. So, uh, no, I mean, they're, they're very authentic. I mean, you can't see the join. I mean, the, the glaze is correct, and it's just, it really looks like the real thing. There uh, was one uh, tile of mine uh, circulating on the internet, and I had painted a UFO in it, and uh, because it was forwarded so many times, one person actually thought that it was a 17th uh, proof, 7th century proof of an alien. There they are. They, 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 look at this. They, the UFOs were already the first sighting, he called it. Or maybe it was an early frisbee. Yeah, it could have been a frisbee as well, but that was a big compliment. Another thing you do, and this is, I think, more a more recent development, is you've started making boxes. They're, they are flat, wall-hanging wooden structures, uh, which are made of strips of wood, like a maze or something like that, which include hundreds or thousands even of tiny painted figures. Yeah, um, I've always been very much fascinated and frightened by ma uh, large masses of people, large groups of people. And, but I've never known really what to do with that until I've bumped into these little puppets that I could buy. Uh, what, these are, why, why are they made? Are they for model railway layout, layouts or something like that? Are sort of plastic puppets and I, I import them from China and then I paint over them. Otherwise I would have uh, 2,000 Chinese people in a, in a, in a wooden uh, labyrinth. But they'd, they'd be too small to see. I mean, these are what, uh, a centimeter high? Yeah, a centimeter high. The smallest ones are centimeters high. But I experiment more and more now nowadays with different sizes as well and I find it interesting if you put them all together they create a story about yeah sort of how how which direction humanity is taking or which direction we are taking as a group uh, in, in a process that we all follow each other blindly until we're stuck in a dead-end street. And so to try and describe it a bit better, they're, they're more as some sort of maze, some sort of um, path through uh, uh, the, the sequence of, of wooden uh, roads, paths, and the crowds, uh, 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 they reach a dead end, I think, in most of them. 
I think we do. I think we do as a society as well. We're uh, stuck. We are with so many people. We have big challenges, eh? especially with the changing climate. And we need to follow different paths. But nobody really does because we all follow each other. And that's how we end up in a dead end road. A lot of the, the, the paintings you do, which are over painting old yeah. uh, Victorian or 100 year old paintings, you, you very often impose some modern element in a classic Dutch landscape. Like there's one with a, a motorway intersection. You use McDonald's a lot. You find a lot of old, mm. old cottages and put a McDonald's sign on. Yeah. Um, and another one, you put big factories in the background. Is this a message you're seriously putting across or is it uh, just a joke? No, it is certainly a serious message. It's certainly something that, uh, that bothers me. Uh, personally, I, I live in Rotterdam and I, I have my gallery in Delft. And in between, you used to have a real nice, uh, typical Dutch landscape, a lot of nature. But I take the bike uh, once or twice every week and always the same road and you see it gradually disappearing. And, uh, you have these large distribution centers or you have factories or you have houses slowly but certainly it's disappearing. And there, uh, nobody seems to bother really and I find that terrible. Uh, the, 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 the space we have is so limited now and, and there's not a lot of beauty left and the last beauty we, we, we destroy it like if it's uh, without any value and that's that's that hurts me personally and once it's gone it's gone and once it's gone it's gone yeah and it will never return again i've got two daughters of 15 years old and we we take the bike sometimes or we go walking there and i explain them as well how how precious it is and that it, how fragile it is and that probably they will not be able to uh, show this landscape to their children because by that time it will be one big factory or one big uh, uh, um, I, that, that actually works both ways because, I mean, in the Industrial Revolution, yeah. um, certain parts of England, for example, were totally and utterly polluted and, yeah. and dominated by factories, and they've all gone. And the towns have been cleaned up, and what buildings were black are now uh, a yeah. nice new brick colour. And even worse, uh, uh, sometimes uh, people regret now that old factories have been knocked down because you could have made such a beautiful museum or apartments with it. And, and that's what I think as well. Um, you, you always seem to be sad about what's disappearing without realizing what you get in return. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the way they are building nowadays and with these large it's also uh, is it sort of temporary whereas before a factory would be a nice solid thing made of brick now it's made out of quick cast concrete or metal sheets like, uh, if you go to a town like Manchester you know you have, you have fantastic factories and you have uh, pubs in it or libraries even uh, galleries and, and those are fantastic spaces but because they were substantial proper buildings not yeah. like the ones they're building now it's all at low price and it, it, it's without imagination we seem to have lost imagination as a society because I really Really can't imagine that we will ever regret knocking down a distribution center. <laughs> okay, on a lighter note. Yeah. Now, because we're in Delft, um, Delft is famous for two things. It's one, the, the blue and white pottery, and the other is Johannes Vermeer. And the uh, paintings of Vermeer, the girl with the pearl earring in particular, do not escape your gaze. Nay, they don't. They, uh, I've been doing a lot of variations on the, on the girl with the pearl earring. I think most notorious one is the one with the braces, where I gave the girl a real metal braces. With but the brace on the teeth, not holding yeah, yeah, the upper yeah. trousers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've done many variations. Um, 
Uh, nowadays, I'm more interested in uh, recreating the girl with the pearl earring and making her almost abstract. And I use letters. I, I wouldn't know if that's the English word, but a schablon where you can uh, write letters. And then I write the letters Johannes Vermeer. And I keep on repeating and repeating and repeating them until the girl is almost abstract. And then you get an interesting process because your own mind starts recreating the girl with the pearl earring because it's such a well-known image. Everybody knows the girl with the pearl earring. So you fill in the missing blanks in your brain yourself. In, in fact, you start repainting the girl with the pearl earring yourself just by watching my deformed version. And that is an interesting process. And you've also done the same with some Van Gogh um, yeah. uh, self-portraits. It is a bit of a coincidence that I use Vermeer so much, or maybe not because I'm confronted with Vermeer so, so many times when I have a walk in the city, but it, it works for pretty much every icon. It works for Van Gogh as well. It works for uh, the Mona Lisa, but it would work for Marilyn Monroe as well. But it has to be a well-known image, otherwise people will know what you're doing. You have to know it very well, otherwise you can't recreate it. You, if you have to start your imagination without a memory, uh, it doesn't work. No, it's, it's just a picture, it doesn't refer to anything. Um, out of all your different techniques, which do you enjoy most doing? Um, that is a difficult question, actually. Um, I think purely the pleasure, it's probably my interventions where I paint the new times in the old paintings because it is, um, I laugh a lot, I have a lot of fun. Um, but as a process, I think probably these new uh, puppets that I've made and the objects that I make. I would have been a great autistic person, but it's never been properly diagnosed. But I become really relaxed and almost into a Zen mood when I glue little puppets for three weeks in a row. So. <laughs> yes, you would. I mean, it's incredibly labor intensive. Yeah, they are, they are. And they are, uh, 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 they can damage your body as well. The first one I've made contained about five, 6,000 puppets and I end up with a frozen shoulder uh, and I couldn't move my, my arm properly anymore. And it took me uh, eight times visiting the physiotherapist before I could uh, walk and, and, and work normally again. I've actually added the costs for the physio in the price of the painting and I've told the person who bought that well as well that it, it, it contains also 400 euros for the physiotherapist. He was delighted about that. For him, it added great value to the painting. Because you're very much, a, um, not using the word in a, in a derogatory sense, but very much a commercial venture. I mean, you're, you're almost like an old um, artisan painter where people could come in and commission yeah. things or... I think that I think that's correct. Yeah, I, I, uh, commercial has a real uh, bad uh, 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 meaning to it to some people, but but for me that that is uh, I'm making a living for myself and my family, and I think there's nothing wrong with it. I think in fact if if you make paintings, you make art, and nobody wants to buy it, nobody's willing to uh, grab their wallet and say I'll buy this painting. I think it's more or less valuable. It doesn't have any value anymore. I like to create uh, paintings which have a value, but it's also for me, selling a painting is part of the process. A painting is only really finished when it's sold. Because you do a lot of commissioned work. I mean, you did a, a big work for the local hospital here. Yeah, that was a nice one. A big, large work with the history of uh, the, the, the hospital and the history of medical science and the history of Delft. So that is, 
you need a large canvas for it to do. Have, have you never fancied doing uh, something really, really large, a big, I mean, things like th- like the thing at Skavening and the, um, the um, 360-degree painting, or I don't know, the Magritte painting in, in Knocker, which was a 360 degrees? Nay, I have been thinking about that, uh, but I... Um, as an artist, you have always some sort of specialities. And one of my specialities is, I think, I've got a lot of ideas. I constantly have a lot of ideas. And I become very restless if I can't make them, if I can't create them. That's why I became an artist in the first place, to, 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 to make all these paintings. And if I would have to wait months and months and months uh, for to make the next painting, to recreate the new idea, I, I, would, I would become restless, I would become depressed a little bit. So there is a maximum of pretty much one month I'm willing to work on an artwork now. Because a lot of things you do are actually quite small, aren't they? Very yeah. small. Yeah, but that, that is uh, also, I think that most painters m- make artwork which is much too big. And they paint two by two meters and that's great and it's fantastic if you have a big loft in the center which is enormous and you have big walls. But most people live in an average house and where you're going to put a painting of two by two meters. So um, it is both that it's um, more quickly that I can make more ideas because they are pretty small but also there's a bigger market for it and people will buy them more easily and it will enables me to make a living out of it and i think that's a good idea and you've also produced uh, a book which is uh, um, part catalog part biography um, and full of uh, uh, from the beginning you've been painting 15 years so it's a, it's a chronology chronological um, almost a catalogue raisonné. Actually, it's my second book. Oh, yes. uh, yeah, and I have made one book already uh, in 2004, and just before I started my gallery, which was a very wrong time because I only was starting as a painter, and I thought that I had reached a reasonable level already, but I didn't. But uh, 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 this book uh, is sort of the second part of it because um, oh, this was a good time to write it with uh, Corona. I have a lot more free time. Had, uh, normally you have a lot of visitors and uh, you spend time on them but uh, this this year it's been quiet so I had the time to write a proper catalogue but it also uh, is a way of uh, rethinking uh, re-analyzing uh, the last couple of years and and making decisions for the near future which direction you should be heading and the book is called uh, tragic realism, yeah. And I think that actually sums up your work very well indeed. So, Rennie Jacobs, thanks very much indeed for that. Thanks for the interview. I was speaking to Rennie Jacobs at Art Jacobs, his studio and gallery in the centre of Delft. Arts Talk magazine provides the perfect companion to Arts Talk radio with reviews and previews in English of cultural events in Holland. Whatever your interest in the arts, our international team of writers will always provide something new and exciting to see online. That's Arts Talk Magazine, all one word, dot NL. Arts Talk Magazine, dot NL. American comedian Greg Shapiro was involved in the creation of the Boom Chicago comedy venue in Amsterdam over 25 years ago. In the second installment of his book, The American Netherlander, Greg describes how it all got started. Hello, 
die A real live nephew of my uncle Sam Born on the 4th of July The very first year, Boom Chicago Comedy Theater performed in Amsterdam. The rehearsal space was under a bridge next to Central Station in Amsterdam. So I'm glad I came the second year. In 1994, there wasn't much pay. We were compensated primarily with airfare, housing, and meals. And a bike, a junkie bike, which I had to get myself. In 1994, it was not uncommon to be approached by someone late at night asking feeds to cope or bike for sale. The going rate for a good bike was about 50 guilders. Soon I found myself wandering the same street on the way home with 50 guilders in my pocket, and it was near the red light district that I found a thoroughly disreputable-looking gentleman on a bike saying, Want to buy? I nodded, yes. And I followed him into one of the myriad shadowy corners, and I looked at the bike, seemed rather new. I said, how much? And he said, 25 guilders. 25? I held up my money and asked, uh, can I try it first? Now nervous, the man said, yeah, yeah, okay, here. And he gave me the bag. I hopped on the bike and I took off. And like an idiot, I followed him saying, uh, you forgot your bag. A quick examination of this plastic baggie proved that I hadn't purchased a bike at all, but instead what looked like crack cocaine. It's possible I had purchased crack. More likely, I was encountering an Amsterdam tradition known as fake drug dealers. At this point, I had drawn a bit of attention to myself, since I was holding up a bag of drugs in the street. Even in Amsterdam, this can draw attention. One downtrodden guy was looking at me curiously, and I said, Can you believe it? I was trying to buy the bike. And instead, I got a bag full of fake drugs. Wide-eyed, the guy said, Huh, let me see that. The way he cherished the bag, I started to think, Okay, maybe not fake drugs. It occurred to me to say, Uh, that'll be 25 guilders, sir. But yeah, in retrospect, I gave him the bag, and I got out of there. I was happy to leave with my syringe virginity. Before we were able to perform at Boom Chicago, we had to do on-street promotion. That was the rule. Three hours of promo for every two hours of show. We were meant to go after the tourists, specifically the English-speaking tourists. I learned pretty quickly how to spot them from a block away. Here comes somebody with Invita backpack and tight-fitting clothes. Okay, not American, probably Italian. You can avoid him. Ah, sporty outdoor mountain climbing gear and baggy jeans. Those were the Americans. Stag parties staggering in the gutter. Those were the Brits. Now, Boom Chicago's first shows were played in the Corte Leitze Dwarsstraat at a salsa club that no longer exists. But in 1994, there was a new location. We performed in a theater across from the Melkweg. We did our trademark Chicago-style mix of sketches and improv. We made pizzas and we served beer in plastic pitchers, some of which had been liberated from the actual Second City Theater back in Chicago. 
In the kitchen at one point, we employed a young man named Ruben Fondermeer. He learned a valuable lesson. If you get a chance to do improv on TV, do it in Dutch. At one point, I got good at street promo. I used a secret weapon, bounce shoes. My boss had bought these bounce shoes thinking that they'd help him with jumping. They'd be fun. But as I found out, the real advantage was speed. Now, part of the problem of on-street promotion, it's timing. Sometimes you wait and wait for just the right people to talk to, but when they show up, you're not positioned well. With the bounce shoes, I had a much bigger range. I could run 50 meters in about five seconds. Sometimes I'd make eye contact with people across the light line, and they'd think they were safe from my awkward physical eye contact. But then, boing, 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 I'd be handing them our tailor-made guidebook, which happened to have a very favorable review of our comedy show. Now, if I'd had a choice, I probably wouldn't have picked on-street promo. I'd much sooner have chosen get subsidy and hire promo. But in retrospect, I am glad for all that experience. It was on-street promo that was my introduction to Dutch actor Peter Faber. It was on-street promo that had us performing for Jam Master Jay and Pink and Ron Jeremy. Not all at once. My colleague Rob was doing on-street promo when he met Burt Reynolds. Burt Reynolds, who ended up visiting Boom Chicago and coming on stage to steal the show. Why, yes, this is my real hair, he said. You know how I know? Because I paid $5,000 for it. He was hilarious. In the early 1990s, there was a big bang of comedy in Amsterdam. First came Boom Chicago, then Comedy Cafe, Comedy Train, Comedy Explosion. In the early years, Boom Chicago would do the summer season and then go back to Chicago for the winter. That's when I'd remember I hated Chicago winters. Soon enough, I was dating a Dutch woman, and we were getting serious. Maybe she'd want to move with me to the States? We decided to book a trip to Chicago to meet my family. It was planned for the week between Christmas and New Year's meaning that her first impression of my home country was winter in Chicago. We decided to stay in the Netherlands. Now, I made my decision to stay in the Netherlands at about the same time that I started working with people who would go back to the U.S. and do quite well. Here are some fun stories about a few of them. Seth Meyers as Captain Technology Seth Myers was a few years behind us at Northwestern University, and he was already popular with the management because he could touch type. Seth was a script-writing machine. For every script we'd bring to rehearsal, he would bring three, and his scripts quickly started showing influences of Amsterdam. During Queen's Day in 1997, someone had acquired an enormous handmade headdress from the Freimarkt, and pretty soon... Seth had written a sketch about two FBI agents who were on stakeout monitoring a cult leader whose uh, choice of headdress was this thing that they got during Queen's Day. But hey, these scripts were only half the show. Then there was the improv. Back when the internet was new, Boom Chicago invented an improv game with a character called 
Captain Technology. In this onstage improv game, he had a sidekick, and together they would take complicated technical problems, and using improvisation, they would make them simple. But here's the twist. The sidekick would be, tw would be played by a volunteer from the audience. In developing the game, we needed a name for the sidekick. As a reminder to keep things simple, we called the sidekick Kid Simple. As Americans, we had no idea that there was a double meaning. The first few times we did Captain Technology on stage, we got an American volunteer, and there was no problem. Volunteers on stage mostly play along. They try not to take too many chances. So imagine our surprise when we got a British volunteer on stage to play Kid Simple, and he made a character choice that I would describe as mildly retarded. Directly after the show, our British friends came up and explained, yeah, in the UK, simple means retarded, learning delayed. Oops. But somehow we still didn't change the name right away. The next night we got a Dutch volunteer on stage. Seth Meyers said, I'm Captain Technology and you're my sidekick, Kid Simple. And the Dutch guy went on to play a sidekick who was part retarded, part deaf mute and spastic thrown in. This guy was really committed. It kind of ruined the scene, but to us backstage, it was hilarious. I mean, leave it to the Dutch guy to be the most politically incorrect. That was part one of chapter two of Greg Shapiro's The American Netherlander, 25 Years of Expat Tales. Part two of chapter two involves other Famous Bloom Chicago alumni such as Amber Ruffin, Ike Barinholtz, and Jordan Peele. If you want to hear more, check out the audiobook at storytell.nl. And if you want to buy the book itself, you can find it at hollandbooks.nl. Yankee Doodle came to town just to ride the ponies. I am a Yankee Doodle boy. Greg Shapiro there, and of course you'll also be able to hear the second part of Chapter 2 in the next edition of Arts Talk Radio. Arts Talk Radio Online Well, I'm afraid that's it for another week. Uh, you've been listening to Arts Talk Radio, and we'll be back in a week or so, hopefully with a lot more interesting people with lots more interesting interviews. My name is Michael Hasted, so till the next time, it's goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>